Do you ever find yourself pondering the question, what is my purpose? Or what is this life for? Do you ever find yourself disillusioned with what your purpose in life is? In the last week or so, it seems that many are pondering this question of life. You guys may have seen the news of the tragic suicides of Anthony Bourdain, a prominent chef and host of the traveling show Parts Unknown, and Kate Spade, a prominent designer of women's clothing and accessories. Both of them were wealthy, having seemingly achieved the quote-unquote life that all Americans and really the world dream of. They had wealth and fame and vocational success. They'd reached the top of the pyramid. They traveled. They were part of the in crowd. Both of them, unfortunately and devastatingly, left behind children. And yet there was a sense of hopelessness and a darkness that drove them to take their own lives. Their families and those that are affected by their deaths, they need to be in our prayers so that they might find the grace of Jesus in the midst of such tragedy. The CDC recently released a study that shows that suicides have increased by more than 30% in the last 19 years. And the specific trend is that those of ages 45 to 64 are the age group most likely to commit suicide. Another article by the Associated Press links this statistic with the deaths of the stars. Its headline reads, Celebrity Suicides Highlight Troubling Trend in Midlife. Now let me pause and say to any of you in this crowd that if you struggle with recurring thoughts of suicide or deep depression, I would ask that you would reach out to me or to your community group leaders or anyone in leadership or really anyone in this room because we care for you. And we want to make sure that you do not take things to a place of darkness that they should not go. We want to be here for you. But what is it that can cause a person to lose hope? that allows the darkness to creep in so heavily that all sense of purpose is lost and there is no other way out? Why is it that people who have seemingly achieved the dream that most of us go after, why is it that they could lose all hope to the point of taking their own lives? Could it be that the saddest place for most humans is to finally step into the place where they have attained what they've been striving for their whole life? that they've achieved their earthly desires and yet realize that it was not enough to fulfill the needs of their heart. King Solomon was clear in his book of Ecclesiastes that life without God is nothing but vanity and smoke. Another pastor talks about soap bubbles. It is just that it often takes us decades, I believe, to find that out. And I think that's why midlife is the age where a lot of people hit that point of darkness. They've finally reached the point where they say, I've attained it, and yet it's not enough. Some are always reaching, but never actually grasping for that golden dream of prosperity and comfort, and so they go to the end of their life still trying to attain it, thinking that if they just would grasp that golden coin, finally life would be worth it. But those that reach the point and attain it, they realize that a life without Christ, a life without His purpose, a life without His people— It's a life that is futile and fruitless and even destructive. In our text before us this morning, Paul is going to deal with this very topic. It seems that there was a bit of a problem in the church at Ephesus where um, 
you know, it's similar to uh, what's in a lot of our churches these days. There were people that were proclaiming Christianity, but few were actually walking in it. They were not living a life that was reflective of Christ. They were instead striving after everything that the world had to offer, the lusts and desires of this world, not realizing that they were called to something greater than what the world had to offer. And so Paul is going to speak to this within the context of what he's been discussing in chapter 4 so far. You can go back and listen to the teachings we've done thus far. That God, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the sending of the Holy Spirit, has created a new humanity made up of both Jews and Gentiles, worldwide, this thing called the church. It is an assembly of the called out ones. Remember, that's what the word ekklesia in the Greek means, from which we get the word church. The called out ones. Paul has taken time throughout chapter 4 to speak to us of who we are and who Christ is, that Christ saved us and called us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light and has unified us as one body and one family in himself. And within this family, all of us use our diversity of gifts and talents and personalities to serve the local body of Christ, to build it up in love. And in all of this, Paul has painted the introduction of what many theologians and commentators believe is a covenant statement for the New Testament church, modeled in the likeness of the Old Testament covenants. We'll continue to talk about that as we continue through the book. And we saw this last week one in which the members of the body of Christ can walk together in relationship with Christ and his people. And so with this in mind in our text today, Paul's going to speak to three groups of people. Really, there's only two. But there's a third group that thinks they are one group and they're really not. Here are the three groups. Those that were in the kingdom of darkness and are in the kingdom of darkness. Those who've been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And then the third group that thinks they're a different group, but they're really not are those that claim citizenship in the kingdom of light but are following a false Christ and are actually still allegiant to the kingdom of darkness in the way that they live. They might say it with their mouth or think it with their head, but they're actually still allegiant in lifestyle to the kingdom of darkness. So Paul, before stepping into the direct and detailed commands of this idea of covenant here in chapter 4, he's going to break apart this idea and he's going to push the people of Ephesus those people that believe they're in the kingdom of light but are actually in the kingdom of darkness, he's going to say to them, stop it. Step into the kingdom of light. To the ones in the kingdom of light, he's going to encourage them to keep walking in it. And all of this is Paul issuing a call. It's the call to a new life in Christ. If you're taking notes, that's what this is entitled today, the call to a new life in Christ. The call to a new life in Christ. Let's read Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, 
and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The first thing that we see Paul say is that followers of Christ, true followers of Christ, must renounce the old self. Must renounce the old self. In the first three verses here, we see similar language that is throughout Paul's writings. Let me remind you of what he said in Romans 1. Uh, this is from Romans 1, 21 through 23. It's very similar. You'll hear the same tone. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for Im- images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The Bible is clear that there are really only two ways to walk in. We heard it there in Psalm 1 as Esther read it to us. The way of darkness and error, the way of wickedness, or the way of truth and light and righteousness. There is no middle way. There is no middle way. All of us were born into the state of being enemies of God. We were born into wickedness. And God, by His grace, has saved some of us by the blood of His Son and brought us into the kingdom of light by His mercy and compassion, not by our own effort. Not because we are worthy of grace, but because we are unworthy of it. There is none righteous, not one. We have all turned our backs on our Creator. All of us deserve to remain in the kingdom of darkness, and yet He, by His grace, has called us out into His kingdom of light. And yet the overarching story of the Bible, even though we are enemies of his, is that in his goodness and mercy and grace, God calls out his people. He calls them out of the kingdom of darkness to be his own and to reflect his image to the surrounding world. Remember the question about the purpose of human life that I started with. Well, we see it very clearly and very quickly if we read the Bible right at the beginning. This is from Genesis 1, 26 through 28. This is the meaning and purpose of life. In fact, it boggles the mind why people keep asking what is the meaning of life. It's been answered right here. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There you go. That's it. God, what is my purpose on this planet? To be his image bearer. To reflect Jesus. That's it. Well, Hans, that's not very exciting. You're probably not a Christian then. That's your job. Whether you're a plumber, an architect, a school teacher, a CEO, a stay-at-home mom, your job is to reflect the image of Christ. To do it when you sin, it takes repentance. To do it when you're walking in righteousness, it's all by his grace. But it's to show his image. And he says, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be stewards of this amazing creation. It's like taking your kids to the playground and going, Go nuts, right? Enjoy the equipment that's been given there, right? My kids don't have to wait too long. They don't sit there and go, you know, I don't know if my purpose is to swing on that swing. I don't know if my purpose is to slide down that slide. They go, swing, I'm swinging, slide, I'm sliding, right? 
And God says, be stewards of this wonderful, beautiful creation I've given you. Live, enjoy relationships, enjoy marriage, have babies, make more image bearers, teaching them who God is. We were to reflect the Lord in character and heart. We were to be his sub-regents exercising servant leadership as we stewarded his creation according to his plan. This is still the meaning of life today. It's the same meaning, it's just that now we're marred by sin. And to reflect him as we go about our lives stewarding the wonderful creation he's given us. But guys, you remember the story from that point on in Genesis 1, it was a downhill run of immorality until chapter 11. When mankind decided to ultimately rebel against God by creating this temple, this tower in a place called Babylon. And they said, we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to be higher than God. We want to make our own religion and our own God. And so God dispersed the people and confused their languages so they could not advance in evil any further. It's a good God that stops us in our evil tracks. And it's from this dispersed people, alienated from God and rebellious in worship of idols, that Joshua tells us that this group develops into the ancestors of Abram or Abraham. This is from Joshua 24.2. It says, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. It is this model of Abraham that God calls him out of his people, out of his idolatrous worship, and out of the life that he'd been living that is the prototype and the model that's echoed throughout the rest of the Bible to be called out. Cast your eyes over to Ephesians 4.1 if you're still there in Ephesians and look at this same kind of language that Paul uses. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to follow Christ and reflect him. In other words, you have been called out like Abraham from the rest of the people, the rest of the idol worshipers, to follow the God of the Bible and him alone. And so a typical pattern is found throughout the word that calls God's people to be odd. Now we all know some of those Christians, right? In every form or fashion, they are just odd, and we love them anyway. And you're thinking, Hans, you're one of them, probably, right? But it's amazing how much we as Christians try to fit in, and usually we're 10 years behind the, <laughs> behind the curve. We've got really good music, and the world says, yeah, we had that music 10 years ago. We've got really cool fashion, and the world goes, yeah, we were wearing that 10 years ago, right? We've got laser light shows, and everybody's like, man, that's from the 70s, dude. Come on, right? We're always behind the curve trying to be cool instead of trying to be different, trying to be odd. Not bad at everything, but different. We've been called out of the rest of the people, out of the idolatry, to follow the God of the Bible, and you could see this throughout the Word. You guys uh, know the book of Leviticus here. This is from Leviticus 18. This is a, a typical statement that comes before covenant, okay? Where it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh Elohim. There is no other God. So you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. 
You shall not do as they do in the land of Salem, where you live. You shall not do as they do in the land of Oregon. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall not follow them, but follow his rules. And so this is very similar to what Paul uses in the language of Ephesians 4. Look there at Ephesians 4.17 again. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Put simply, Paul is saying, don't live like everyone else. Let me pause there for a second. Let's not run roughshod over the top of that statement. God is calling us to not live like everyone else. Yeah, Hans, that's why I homeschool my kids. That's the mark of a Christian. Not really. Well, Hans, that's why we wear, you know, a certain type of clothing to church in modesty. That's the mark of Christians. Well, maybe, maybe not. What is it that makes us different? Well, I don't curse or watch R-rated movies. Well, that's a good start, but that's not what makes a Christian. God knows that we need to live differently, and so through Paul, he calls us to do so. And the idea of Gentiles here is not just non-Jews. If it were, he would be contradicting all of chapter 2 because chapter 2 says Gentiles have been brought into the church. What he means here by using the term Gentiles is people that exist outside of the covenant people of God. Outside of the covenant with God and outside the covenant with his people. Look back with me at Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 and you'll see what I'm talking about. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Guys, what was circumcision a sign of? To be Jewish, yes, but more so, it was a sign of covenant. You knew you were part of the covenant people of God if you were circumcised. So you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth or community of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So what he's talking about here by using the term Gentiles in 417 is he's saying everybody who's still outside of life with Christ, still outside covenant relationship with God, still outside the community of faith. We were without hope because we were strangers to the covenants of promise. And remember that Paul has been outlining the idea of two kingdoms, one of darkness and one of light. You are either enemies of God, separated from him and his covenant people, or you are citizens of his kingdom, his children, within the covenant promises of God. And so what defines or characterizes people is which allegiant, which kingdom they're allegiant to. For people that are allegiant to the kingdom of darkness, Paul uses similar language here as in Romans. So let's unpack it grammatically a bit, verses 17 through 19. It's not going to go in the order that's there in our English, um, but it's, I'm going to break it apart based on the grammar here. And so the first thing that we see in terms of the characteristics of those outside God's covenant community, is we see, first and foremost, a hardness of heart. A hardness of heart. This is a spiritual blindness, a spiritual deafness that is caused by giving in to the temptation, just as Eve did in the garden, that I get to decide what is right or wrong, that you get to decide what is right or wrong. When we start to say, I get to decide what is evil and what is good, it's the same sin that innately took over Eve in the garden. 
that an individual knows truth by their feelings, their thoughts, and their emotions. We each become the source of truth rather than turning to God as the source, and so we become hardened to any outside truth. That's what hardness of heart means. Hardened to any outside truth. Secondly, this results in being darkened in understanding. Darkened in understanding. This is an ignorance and a futility or fruitlessness that comes from only caring about yourself. A self-serving and self-protection that is the exact opposite of what we were made for. I won't repeat it because it's full of crass language, but it's amazing if you look at, I don't have Twitter, but I've been reading the news articles on Anthony Bourdain, how many of the stars reference the fact that he was traveling three quarters of the year and it was loneliness that drove him to suicide. It was relationship. It was lack of love. It was lack of roots in relationship that they believed drove him to take his own life. We were made not for selfishness, but made for selflessness. We're made to sacrificially love one another. I got to tell you a quick story. I'm going to brag on my own kids. I could tell you tons of stories that isn't bragging on them. But it's amazing how you know what we're made for. The other night, Kelly and I are laying in bed reading and, and we hear this stuff over the baby monitor and we're like, what, what is that? And so we hop up and we go over to the baby monitor and there in the baby monitor, we're like, why are there three children in one child's bed, right? They're all in Kara's bed. I have two, two sons that are seven and a daughter that's four. So we kind of go in there and what we see is that John, the oldest, uh, is holding a flashlight and Jaden's holding a book and they're reading to Kara. And the first words out of their mouth wasn't, <gasps> or, you know, they're worried or anything. They just said, they looked at us, they said, mommy, daddy, Kara had a bad dream and we wanted to come in and comfort her. We walked out of the room going, we are amazing parents. <laughs> right? No, we walked out of the room going, Jesus is good. See, this is what Jesus infused by the Holy Spirit into people's life does is it creates selfless seven-year-olds. I don't know about you, but that was not me. I was like candy, toys, TV, video games. Gimme, gimme, gimme. It's amazing. And Kelly and I walked in there and out of there knowing, man, this is what we're created for. We're created for selfless, sacrificial love. But our darkness and understanding causes us to think life is all about us and we become futile, striving after selfishness, which can never be fully accrued. Third, what happens is the outcome of the darkness of heart and the darkness in understanding is that we become alienated from life with God. This in and itself, of itself is judgment from God. Man, when I'm separated from my wife, it's like judgment, Right? It's the same thing. Walking away from God is judgment in and of itself. We don't have to wait for hell. There's judgment. That we're given over to our desires and separated from the source of life and love, which overflows into separation from people alienated from the life of God. And all of this leads to this last place where we have given so far over to our desires. We've been given in, giving in to our own uh, zeal for the lusts of this life that we end up losing self-control and living recklessly. I've seen this in even moral people. They live recklessly in the way that they overwork and push aside their family. They live recklessly in their overspending and racking up of credit debt. They live recklessly in only striving for retirement and getting to retirement and realizing that their entire life is gone. They live recklessly. 
And Paul states that we become callous, and this is similar to hardening, but it's more like when your skin becomes desensitized, like when you play guitar. You can't feel anything anymore. There's a desensitization to the things that would break God's heart. It's crazy. When I was a non-believer, I used to watch uh, scary movies and horror movies like crazy. There is an advertisement that pops up on my computer for a scary movie, and I'm like, <clears throat> right? There's a softening that happens when the Lord is in your life. Why would I want to watch zombies and undead and blood and murder? Jesus came so none of that exists. But yet we keep simply pursuing our own selfishness and worshiping our idols, and it turns into living recklessly. Now, please recognize that this is not just the worst of the worst, because I find that in order to ease our consciences, we go, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a moral person. He's talking about the worst of the worst. But we can assume that Paul intended to communicate this to people in the church, to anyone who lives their, lives their life for their idols rather than for Jesus. And this can be those things marked by society as evil, and it's growing less and less that this is the case. Things like drugs, sex, and debauchery, that's becoming more and more the norm. But it can also be those things that are more morally acceptable. Living for and worshiping at the idol of self, the idol of education, the idol of our own children, the idol of retirement and success, the idol of entertainment and hobbies, and living for the weekend over and above Christ. If we're moral, quote-unquote, but living for those things instead of for Jesus, we are no different than anyone else in the kingdom of darkness. And so Paul says plainly, don't do that. Stop it. If we're living for anything other than Jesus, Paul lovingly tells us, stop it. His words, this I say and testify in the Lord, are invoking the authority of Christ and the command of heaven. Stop it. This is not how Christians are to live! Exclamation point. Look in your Bible. That's what it says. That is not the way you learn Christ. Now, a couple of questions that I know will arise from this line of thinking. The first thing is, Hans, why must we stop those things that are not morally wrong? I love my hobbies. I love whatever. Some things are inherently evil, but for others, guys, it's what, about, it's what distracts us from obedience to Christ. We're made to worship one God, the God that came as Jesus Christ. And to put anything else in place of that as our highest value, our highest joy, our highest happiness, it will not fulfill us because it's not what we're created for. It will ultimately ruin us. Another question that you might have is, well, Hans, if we're supposed to renounce our old life, what about our kids? How can they renounce their old life, right? You know, all those drug-fueled parties that my seven-year-olds used to go to, right? How can they renounce that? They don't have that. And just to be clear, they've never gone to a drug-fueled party, just, just in case anybody picks that up on the recording. Well, you'll notice that Paul uses the word life and self interchangeably in this section. And guys, even if our children, for those of us that are parents in here, have not committed heinous atrocities in life that they need to renounce, we must help them to put off and renounce the old self. They were born into selfishness. Can I get an amen? amen. Parents never realize how selfish they are until they have kids. Then they go, wow, I'm selfish. And then they realize, they don't realize how selfish humanity is until they look at their children and go, wow, you're selfish, right? 
We are created in the self of selfishness and we are called to renounce that and we need to train our children that very same thing. And lastly, I know that a question will get asked, how do we know if we've renounced our old self? Well, guys, just ask your friends, non-believing and believing. Ask them what sets your life apart as different or odd. Do I operate in relationships and deal with conflict differently than the world? Is that what makes me odd? I hope it is. Friend, if you're simply living for your house, living for the weekend, your retirement, your kid's little league, Netflix and binge-watching, the next adrenaline rush, if you deal with conflict and division and anger and bitterness, then you are living just like the rest of the world and there's nothing that makes you different. The world looks at you and they see no image of Jesus. They go, if that's what Jesus is, I don't want it because I get that over in the world. Now to be sure, some of those things, if placed in proper priority low on the list, like Little League, they can be mission fields, so they're not inherently wrong. But if we are missing out on the kingdom of heaven because that's all we're doing, there's a problem. Dear brother or sister, I want you to take a look at your life today. I want you to think and be introspective this week about whether or not the way you live life, not what you say or what you think, but the way you live is different. Ask yourselves, am I walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which I have been called, or am I hanging out in Babylon with all the other idol worshipers, striving for the same things they are? I pray the Spirit would convict us of those areas of life where our lives look the same to the world so that we might be able to change, renounce those things, and put off the old self. Well, Paul knows that it's good to renounce the old self, but Paul also knows that if we don't have a direction to go and we change the direction, we're probably just going to be lost in a different direction. And so, rather than just saying, stop it, he also says, let's start doing something else. And so, Paul points out to the Ephesian church that as you put off the old self, recognize what you are to be. And this is what he says. He says, recognize Jesus as the true self. Recognize Jesus as the true self. Look at verses 20 and 21 there. He says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. You see, Abraham's descendants were called to the land of Canaan to be God's people, but unfortunately for them, they found out very quickly that geographic change does not result in immediate and lasting holiness. For evil was not just found around them, but within them. This is what cracks me up about us as humans. How many times have you heard yourself say or someone else say, man, I can hardly wait to go on that mission trip because then I'll be devoted to Jesus. I'm going to be over here sleeping with my boyfriend and girlfriend, but then I'm going to be holy, right? Well, that's pretty much all of youth ministry, guys. How many times have you heard yourself say, well, if I can just get a different job with different schedules, then I'll have time for morning devotions. We think if I just change something external, then the holiness will come internal. But as it is with the Israelites, it is with us. It's the hearts and minds that were evil and needed to be renewed to walk in covenant faithfulness with God. 
We think a change of scenery or job or relationship or church will result in a better obedience. All the, way, all the while, it's our hearts that need to be transformed because idolatry follows you unless you renounce it. And some were indeed obedient to the law of Moses, but most were not. And the people as a whole slowly went through the steps that Paul outlines earlier, ending in debauchery and alienation from God. And so they got more rigid in the law of Moses, but missed the truth of who God was. You see, Adam was made in the image of God to reflect God, and how did that go for him? Success or failure? Israel was called to be a people that would be a reflection of righteousness and justice for God, and as a people, success or failure? No one could perfectly keep the law. No one could fulfill the original purpose. And if all we get out of the teaching this morning is, I have to try harder to be holy, then you have missed the entire point. Because while we renounce the old way, we have to turn towards something else. That's what repentance is, to move from the old way to the new. And who are we now facing? Are we facing a different idol or are we facing Jesus Christ? It was in Jesus that we are told we finally see the true nature and image of God. He is the one human being that finally, fully, and adequately reflected God the Father's character and heart. The author of Hebrews says that in Jesus, we see the express imprint of the Father. It says, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That word imprint there is the word character in Greek. It's from where we get the idea of someone's character, their exact qualities. In Jesus, we see the very character of God, the Father, in human form. And this is why Jesus could claim that to look at him was to see God the Father. Turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Starting in verse 8. Jesus is proclaiming that he is the Father and he is going to the Father and he says to them, you have seen the Father. And in verse 8, Philip says to him, John 14, 8, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. This is an honest request, right? I want to see God. I want to experience God. I want to have that feeling, Jesus. And look what Jesus says. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, how does he dwell in Jesus? By the Holy Spirit, just like he does with us. The Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me also will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. You see, Jesus is the true self all humanity is called to be. Christianity, we try and create these molds that every person is supposed to look the same and be the same. But guys, that's the whole point of 
Ephesians 4, we have a diversity of gifts in one body, and when we collectively act together, who are we supposed to reflect? Jesus. Who are we supposed to reflect? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of Moses. He was the ultimate Adam, the ultimate Israel. He fulfilled what no other human being could. But guys, the good news of Jesus is that he didn't stop there. He didn't just come as a moral example to us. The good news that we are given is that Jesus, because he was perfect and sinless, he could be offered as a substitutionary sacrifice for us. The express image of God the Father, God himself dying on the cross in our place as the Son. He atoned for your sin and mine and broke the power of sin and death that has been held over our heads. And then three days later, what happened? Oh, church. What did he do? He rose again. But again, he didn't stop there. The good news of Christ's love for us is that he also ascended to the throne as king. The king of kings in the kingdom of heaven. And from heaven he sent the Holy Spirit to transform us into his image. And just as Jesus perfectly reflected the Father, the Spirit now empowers us to reflect Jesus in growing capacity. The biggest lie that's been sown in the church is, Jesus died, he did all the work, wait until you die and go to heaven, you don't have to do anything. An even bigger lie is, you can never be like Jesus because he's perfect. That is true, but you can still reflect him. And so in John 14, 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Guys, is, that a, is there a caveat there that that doesn't apply to you or me? Raise your hand if this applies to you. Okay, a few of you didn't get the point. Raise your hand if this applies to you. All of us. And greater works than these will he do because Jesus is going to the Father and he's sending the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit's work within us, we are slowly but surely being conformed into Christ's reflection. And we are promised that this work of sanctification and glorification will be completed in Christ Jesus. This is the good news that we're given. Do you believe that this morning? It's not just that you're saved, it's that you're being conformed into his image. That's part of the gospel. Do you believe that this morning? There must be something in the water that's making y'all sleepy. The verse that so many people quote all the time, Romans 8.28, about God working things together for good is one of my favorite verses, but read it in context about what he's working together. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice that that doesn't say your purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's this process that Paul hopes for the Christians at Ephesus, that they would embrace this process. Guys, this isn't about going on a retreat or going to a conference. This is about every trial and tribulation and suffering and brokenhearted issue that you are dealing with today as you come in this gym. In the midst of those situations, God is working all things together for good, not for your comfort, not for your purpose, but for his own. And what is his own? That you would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ and display his glory to the world. Do you believe that today? Amen. That's what is working together for good. That's what good is, is when we reflect Jesus. And this is what Paul hoped for the church at Ephesus. Unfortunately, it seemed that in Ephesus, 
There were members of the body that though they had learned who Christ was, they were still living just like the world around them. They had a mental ascent, but no walk. And they were walking what the world has to offer and not in the fruitful life of being led by the Spirit of God, God in the law of Christ and changed into his image. And he said, that's why he says back in Ephesians, he says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Guys, it's amazing how relevant that is for us today. Okay, just to make sure you're awake, because this is the really important part of today's teaching. Simon says, put up your right hand. Simon says, put up your left hand. Put your hands down. Ah, you're all out. Okay. Now that you're tuned back in, now that you're tuned back in, let's focus here. This is amazingly relevant for us today because we have to ask ourselves, have I actually learned Christ correctly? And the way I'm going to help you illustrate this today uh, or, or view this is I want to use a graphic I learned from Dr. Gary Bashirs at Western Seminary describing the dimensions of God's grace through Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. When we talk about grace, grace is totally misused, in my opinion, in most of uh, Christians' minds today. I hear grace and I always go, what do you mean by that? Here's the dimensions of grace. The first thing that God's grace brings us is unconditional, unmerited acceptance into his kingdom. Do you get that? When you are saved by Jesus Christ, you get unconditional acceptance into his kingdom. But it doesn't stop there. You also get empowerment for growth and service by the Holy Spirit. Whoa, 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 wait up. I thought grace was just that first part. Well, you've misunderstood grace and you misunderstand Jesus. It also gives us empowerment for growth and service. And here's the third one that I think is absent in a great percentage of American Christians. Grace is also cleansing from sin. It's repentance. It's renouncing the old self and taking up the self that Jesus calls us to. The image of Jesus. These are the three dimensions of grace. If we don't have all three of these going on in our mind and hearts and in our life, we have missed out. The first one is justification by his grace, not of works. The empowerment there is power and the desire to be changed into his image. And the third one is part of the sanctification that leads to conviction and confession and repentance. If we deny any one of these pieces, we turn into errant Christians for example, if we want growth and service and cleansing from sin, but not unconditional, unmerited acceptance, we become legalists. You got to do, do, do. You got to change. You got to renounce. If that's all you hear, guys, you're going to come up to me and say, Hans, you're teaching legalism. I am not teaching legalism because the core of justification is unmerited acceptance into his kingdom by his grace alone, not by our works. But if you have those two and not that, you're a legalist. Well, let's say you have the unconditional love, the acceptance, and cleansing from sin, but not the growth and service. Well, you're lazy. Well, Hans, I'm just too busy to serve the kingdom. Well, stop being so busy in the life of the kingdom of darkness and start being busy about the kingdom. Everybody's got to pay bills, but that doesn't have to be everything that envelops your time. If you have that and you have un unconditional, unmerited acceptance, but you don't have the cleansing from sin, well, then this gives us license this right here, this is a heresy that was condemned long ago called antinomianism. If you want to figure out the fancy word, it means anti-law. People who go, law bad, grace good, that's the Christian I am. You've missed the point of the Bible. The Mosaic law was replaced with the law of Christ in which we now walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
All three have to be part of our lives. We have to have an emphasis on Jesus as Savior, Redeemer, and Friend, and as Lord, King, and Lawgiver. If we do not, then what it reveals about us is that we have a false understanding of Christ. A truly grace-based belief system actively works to renounce the old self anytime it creeps up and does so with an environment of covenant commitment and acceptance where brothers and sisters have voice into your life, calling one another to a holier life that glorifies Jesus. I believe that's what we're building at this church. It's in its infancy, but I believe we're building that. And this is why Paul mentioned the gift of teachers within the church. And he says, assuming that you have heard about him and are taught in him. We hear of Jesus, but we don't just stop there and wait until we go to heaven. We're taught in him. And we make that a priority. But we don't stop there. We then move from learning to application. Walking as Jesus walked, living as his body in Christ. This is the outcome of justification. Look back at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, and these three verses now should make total sense to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that none may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If those three verses have ever been confusing to you and you think, well, Paul's being a hypocrite here, we're saved not by works, but then he tells us to work, that means you were most likely an antinomian, a heretic, living in license to sin. Well, Hans, I never did anything terrible. Yeah, but this is the view of Christ that you had. And that's error. What Christ calls us to is a more fulfilled life where we're saved by grace through faith, but then that works out in our life as we serve him. And so today, the point of application for this piece is that we need to be discerning. We need to ask ourselves, is what I'm following actually the Jesus of the Bible that accepts me by his grace and empowers me for growth and service, all the while stripping away my fleshly sin to live in true righteousness and holiness in his image? Guys, if we're walking in that truth, then this third piece becomes far easier because It's by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us and the knowledge of the word that overflows out of us and the community of the spirit that holds us accountable. The third thing that Paul calls us to in living the new life is to reflect Jesus in the new self. Renounce the old self. Realize that Jesus is the true self. Recognize that. Notice all the R's here. Renounce. Recognize Jesus as the true self, and then lastly, reflect Jesus in the new self. In this last small section of our text today, Paul summarizes what the proper response is of one who has been taught the truth of Jesus. Look there at Ephesians 4.22. This is what the truth is in Jesus. 4.22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is where we get the outline for today. It's straight out of the text. Put off your old self. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds according to the Holy Spirit regenerating us after the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then put on the new self. We take on the example of Jesus and walk as his disciples in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, striving to live as Jesus would have lived. Rightly representing the Father to the world. 
There's a reason that Jesus says, guys, my yoke is easy and my burden light, but that's a picture of two oxen with a yoke on them where they're both bearing the burden. And what are they doing? They're plowing soil. They're not sitting back drinking lattes, wondering when heaven's going to come. They're working, they're striving, but they're doing it together. And so there is an ease to it. And I know my walk in Christ is easier and lighter because of you and because of Christ in my life. If we do this, if we reflect Jesus and the new self, we're rightly representing the Father to the world. And in so doing, we are answering the call to a new life in Christ. Now, here's the good news. I believe that what Scripture teaches is this. When we repent of our sins, that means that we leave the kingdom of darkness and we are brought into the kingdom of Christ But you might be asking the same question I often do, which is, Hans, then why do I sometimes act like I'm still in the kingdom of darkness? Well, our allegiances and desires and hopes and convictions hopefully have changed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We follow Jesus. We know this. But the bad news is is that even even though we've made that decision to give our hearts and minds to Christ, there's still filthy remnants of that old allegiance in our lives. We just got a new fridge the other day. I'm going to connect this, don't worry. And in our old fridge, you had to open up the doors in order to pull out the drawer. In our new fridge, you can just pull out the drawer. It's a separate door. I can't even tell you how many dozens of times in the last week I've opened the doors and gone, it's right there. Why do I keep doing this? Anybody else ever have that? You start a new habit and you're like, why am I still doing the old habit? And I'm literally getting angry with myself about a fridge drawer. Hans, you dummy, come on, open the drawer. Well, I'm starting to get it. I finally, last night, opened just the drawer. It took about seven days. For some of you, it might be like two or three. But guys, that's a picture of life with Christ, renouncing the old self. Why do I have the same thought patterns? Well, because guys, your brain isn't resurrected yet. It still has the same neural pathways. Put them to death and resurrect new ones. We still have the same habits, the addictions, Some of us have old relationships that we need to let go, old possessions that we need to let go. We still have this odor of darkness lingering. But the good news is that we're being renewed day by day, and that will eventually go completely away. We're choosing to put off our old self and put on the new self in the image of Jesus. Well, Hans, how does it work? I've got, you might say, I've got so much stuff going on in my life. In fact, you might say, Hans, coming here today and hearing renounce the old self, put on the new self, it sounds like more weight that I've got to carry, more action that I've got to do, more problems and and a sense of failure that I have to walk out of here with today. But see, the problem is, guys, is we've become outsourcers. And so we think in order to be sanctified, we have to have a separate place and a separate time and a separate thing that we go do to be sanctified. The good news of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and with us every moment of every day is that it happens in the miraculously mundane of life that you're sanctified. Some of you this morning have trials and tribulation that you've walked in here with. You have things that you have no control over. You have people in your family who are sick. Some of you have people in your family who are not believers and you are begging the Lord to save them. Some of you have trials and tribulation economically. And you think, how can I put a pause button on that and go be sanctified? But it doesn't happen at a conference or retreat. It happens within those normal occurrences, those heartbreaks. 
where whatever you're being weighed down by, you literally take off your shoulders and lay at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't do this anymore. I turn to you. I trust you. I can't do this by my own power. I have to trust you. I have to let go of everything else that I'm gripping onto in life in order to survive. And that is when you come face to face with the risen Jesus. When you finally say, there is no idol that can support me. I need you. And so whatever is weighing you down as you walk in the sanctuary this morning, that very situation is the situation in which Christ wants to sanctify you. Is it a situation in which you're depressed? Then go to him and let him bring joy back to your life. Is it a situation in which you're angry and frustrated and bitter? Then bring it to him and let him show you the path to bring reconciliation. You've already been accepted into the kingdom if you've professed him as Christ. Allow him to take the burden of whatever sin or trial is surrounding you and lead you in the way that you need to walk in the new life of Christ. The good that God is working out through the brokenness of life is that you are being changed into his likeness as you renounce the old self. Turn to the true self in Jesus and put on Jesus, the new self, made in his image. In that very moment where you think, I wish I were holier, stop and say, I'm going to renounce what I used to do and I'm going to just simply look to Christ and follow his lead. And you will find that sanctification comes easier than you think. This is what 2 Corinthians 4 says. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, which even though it doesn't feel like that, guys, that's what this is. In a billion years, you will look back and go, what was I worried about? This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so today I want to call you to a few things. I want to call you first to be convicted. Be convicted in those areas where your life looks just like the world and take whatever action is necessary on your part to renounce it. Secondly, I want you to be discerning. Not only be convicted, but be discerning. Is the Jesus you are following biblical or causing you to live in laziness or license to sin or legalism? If so, you need to lay down that Jesus and take up the truth of who Jesus really is. So I want you to be convicted and be discerning, but I also want you to be reminded. If you are a believer in Christ, you have not only been accepted, but you have been regenerated. I forget that all the time. You are led by the Spirit of God so you can be active about the work of putting on the new self and reflecting Christ in partnership with the power of the Holy Spirit. Be convicted, be discerning, be reminded, and lastly, leave here being encouraged. Even though you feel as though life right now is suffocating, Maybe you feel like you are failing. Maybe you feel like nothing's going right. I would call you to cast your eyes upon Jesus. Cast your eyes upon Christ and realize that God is working out something beautiful in you, even in the muck you're currently standing in. Stay firm in the faith and endure through it. God may not be the causal hand behind the evil that's going on or the brokenness that's there in your life, 
but he will definitely utilize it by his sovereign grace for your growth in him and for his glory. Let's be a church made up of people who answer the call to a new life in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen.